Hello and welcome to Talking About Methods, a podcast brought to you by the Centre for Sociolegal Studies in Oxford. I'm Linda Mulcahy, the Director of the Centre, and this podcast is one of a series that we will be developing over the next couple of years. Each podcast will involve a discussion with an expert that focuses on the benefits and problems associated with a range of different methodologies used in the study of law and society. If you visit our blog, which is called Frontiers of Sociolegal Studies, you will find a short reading list to accompany each talk. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this podcast on surveys in the Talking About Methods series. We're very fortunate to have an expert in conducting surveys with us today, Professor Pasco Pleasance. Pasco Pleasance is Professor of Empirical Legal Studies at University College London. He has conducted empirical research to explore issues concerning access to justice and the composition and working of the legal services sector for 25 years. During that time, Pasco has employed a wide range of empirical research methods, but is increasingly associated with quantitative approaches and particularly surveys. Recently, he was lead author of the OECD's Global Guidance, Legal Needs and Access to Justice and the Access to Justice chapter of the United Nations Handbook on Governance Statistics, both of which provided critical support to the United Nations 2020 adoption of the first global sustainable development goal concerning access to justice target, 16.33. So welcome to our podcast series, Pasco. We're really grateful for you uh, to you for finding time to come and talk to us today. And I wonder if I could just get the ball rolling by asking you to tell our audience a little bit about the sort of socio-legal research that you do. Um, okay, well, um, thank you for inviting me. And um, I suppose that currently my research in terms of subject matter is focused in three areas. Um, the first is how people uh, across all parts of the population, understand and deal with issues that have a legal dimension, which in the modern world encompasses a vast array of issues, and the extent to which people achieve just outcomes to disputes uh, that arise. And much of my work in this area in the past couple of years has been to help develop a robust measurement framework to enable the UN to formally adopt a sustainable development target for improving access to civil justice. Um, the second uh, subject area linked to this is what has become known as legal capability and concerns identification and measurement of the knowledge, skills, attributes and resources that people um, and organisations potentially uh, need in order to be able to anticipate and deal effectively with legal issues that they encounter. And here, my most recent research has been focusing on developing with my colleague Nigel Barmer, uh, standardised measures of particular dimensions of legal capability um, using methods that are common in other fields such as education and health research, but largely absent in the socio-legal field. And uh, now through a uh, large scale survey in Australia, using these to map public legal capability. And the third area um, is the nature and composition of uh, legal services. And here the concern is with determining and predicting changes in the social makeup and stratification of the legal professions. 
um, with a further question around how legal service provision maps against public needs for legal services. So all the three areas um, are deeply interconnected. That's really interesting. Thank you so much. And hopefully we can dig down a bit deeper with how you've used uh, different methods in that research. But I mean, I think it's significant to say that you are at UCL, which I think has, has you know, really been at the forefront of building up skills and expertise and capacity building in quantitative methods. And the particular, serv- uh, the particular method that you've used is, is surveys. I wonder if you could tell us what made that method suitable for the projects in which you've used it. Um, as as you well appreciate, I mean, all empirical research starts with uh, research questions, and um, choices of data sources depend on the nature of the questions being asked. Um, so, to take the example of how people deal with issues that have a legal dimension, um, if we want to obtain population estimates, then we will need data that can encompass the totality of legal issues. Um, could we use administrative data? After all, legal professionals and formal processes leave long paper trails. Uh, but the trails only exist for legal issues that are taken to professionals or utilize uh, processes for which data is routinely collected. Um, and what of other legal issues? Uh, that people take no action to resolve or resolve in different ways. And here, administrative data is weak, and the same could be said for most other sources of data. However, surveys are potentially able to reach out to all of the population um, and potentially can reach to um, uh, capture data uh, about all of the legal issues that uh, that the, the population face. So surveys are used in this context uh, because at the moment only surveys can provide the data that's needed to answer the question. Um, hence the measurement of the progress against that new UN Sustainable Development uh, Goal uh, will be through surveys. That's great. Thanks so much. And I think, you know, your mention of administrative data and data that's collected by government departments is really significant here, because I think there have been a lot of concerns raised about the quality of that data. um, And that does rather hamper socio-legal research. So I hope that survey methods um, are of particular interest to the early career academics that might be listening to this podcast. And I think we all need to know a lot more about them. So could, could you help us in that journey with telling us a little bit more about the work that you have to do in compiling and then administering a survey? What sort of planning do you have to engage with? <laughs> well, I was, I was going, when you were talking about administrative data quality, I was going to, um, I was going to interject and, and talk about survey data quality as, uh, as well. I mean, there's a data quality is a big issue, whatever uh, the nature of the data that um, that you're employing within uh, empirical research, um, but you know, turning to surveys, I think a lot of people think that there isn't really much to surveys, um, and um, it's probably true to say that there isn't much to many surveys. Um, but robust survey data actually requires a huge amount of preparatory work. And without this work, large amounts of money can easily be wasted on producing data that's simply unfit for purpose. 
Um, aside from the theoretical complexity of concepts um, that comprise the subject matter of surveys, such as legal issue or legal capability, to refer back to um, the projects I've already uh, sort of uh, introduced, there are huge complexities in operationalizing these concepts for use in surveys. Um, for example, the concepts need to be communicated unambiguously, reliably, uh, the sensitivities and attitudes of respondents, the context of questions, uh, these need to be taken into account, the impact of different modes of delivering surveys appreciated. And here I'm talking about the risks that data may not represent what you think it represents, uh, which is pretty fundamental in survey terms um, because of problems with validity, measurement error, processing error, etc. Um, but then also surveys need to be administered to an appropriate sample, unless we're talking about the census, of course. Um, uh, uh, so an appropriate sample of a defined population. And here errors can relate to sample frame coverage, non-response, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, maybe to give an idea of the work involved in running a survey uh, for the Australian Survey of Legal Capability, um, that I mentioned, uh, being run by the Victoria Law Foundation. The survey is not yet quite in the field, but the project work has been ongoing for well over a year already. Um, first focusing on developing the contextual and theoretical framework, then on testing and developing survey-based measures. Uh, and this involved preliminary surveys, um, as well as consultations. Um, and drew on other survey development work, which in turn involved extensive qualitative data collection uh, to explore aspects of concepts and, uh, and means of communication of concepts. Um, and then there's been the drafting, the scripting, the cognitive testing, um, the refinement and technical error correction. Uh, and of course, beyond all this, there's the development of a sampling strategy and uh, so an appropriate uh, sample frame has to be identified and then uh, you need to determine a strategy for selecting sample points, uh, stratification issues, um, and ultimately you, you, you need to design your sampling strategy so that you can ensure that your findings can be generalized to the population um, of Victoria in this particular instance. Um, and um, I've missed out many, many considerations, but you know that just gives an idea that you, do, you don't just um, sit down and write some questions and then go and ask some people um, the questions that you've just made up. There's actually a huge amount of work uh, that should go into the development of the concepts, of the questions, um, of the instrument itself um, in technical terms. So all of the, the coding, uh, the programming um, and coding ultimately, um, and also the, you know, the sampling and the implementation. Um, training field workers, I mean, you know, there's no end to the, uh, the sort of the list of considerations. Hence, large surveys can often uh, take a number of years to uh, properly implement.
It all brings back horrible memories, Pasco. I remember when I was a postdoc at Oxford, taking 18 months to design a survey, the questions in the survey. It was a fantastic learning curve for me, but my friends were endlessly taking and making fun of me. Um, could I just go back to something you said? Because I'm aware that we're hoping the podcast will be listened to by early career academics. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by cognitive testing? Because it might be a term that's unfamiliar to some people. Um, <clears throat> yes, yeah, sorry for sorry for getting techie. I've, I've been trying to not be techie, but it's um, it's difficult because there are so many technical aspects. But um, uh, I mean, cognitive testing uh, encompasses a, a a number of, of of approaches. But in 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 broad basic terms, uh, cognitive testing is where you um, you essentially test out your questions on um, a relatively small number of um, participants. Um, and, um, and usually what you would be doing, would you, you would be asking the people you're asking the questions to, to think out loud. So all the things that normally that they would be doing in their head when mulling over the question and thinking about how they're going to formulate their answers, um, that instead of that, they would um, articulate that. And um, this helps to give an idea of how questions are being understood um, and, uh, and, and also uh, the processes that people are going through in, in selecting from if it's uh, you know, a question which has a number of options that can be chosen between, you know, what, how people are understanding those. Um, so it's about comprehension. It's about um, identifying whether there are particular aspects of, of questions or, or the placement of questions within um, the run of a series of questions, um, you know, whether there are issues um, that are preventing um, people from understanding uh, what you're trying to communicate um, in the way that is meant. Great. Can I ask you a little bit about what insights you think surveys bring to the table that other methods can't? I mean, I'm, for instance, do a lot of in-depth qualitative interviewing. So what are you able to bring to the table that I'm not? Um, well, I sort of go back to, in big picture terms, I would go straight to population estimates. Um but you know, I think I think it's important always because um, <laughs> not all my work is survey work, um, and um, you know, I'm not I'm not tied to any particular methodology. It's just that's where uh, I think surveys surveys can provide um, uh, data to a broad range of designs, um, and they are. Um, they're subject to quite high level of control um, in terms of the nature of the data. So obviously uh, the work that you're referring to is, is, is more qualitative um, and uh, surveys tend to be fairly quantitative. Um, but you know, ultimately, as I said before, all empirical research starts with questions and it's the questions that dictate the research design and forms of data that are needed to um, obtain answers to the questions. You don't go out one day and say, 
let's do a large scale national survey. That's a good idea. What should we do it on? You know, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Empirical research starts with the questions. And once you have a question, um, it is um, and you've probably experienced you know, this um, uh, a lot within within your teaching. But uh, once you have a, a clearly articulated question, um, many approaches, designs, data collection sources um, are instantly ruled out. Um, it's, you know, you can't just throw any old design at any old question. And uh, so, um, yeah, so, so surveys are suitable for certain types of questions. Uh, but, and the most obvious thing that they bring to the table are those population estimates. Uh, but also surveys, because of the nature of the sampling, um, and this is not something that's intrinsic to surveys, but, uh, but often that ability to generalize from surveys means that um, where you're looking to try to um, uh, identify social patterning or um, you're looking to try to um, identify where phenomena fit as against each other, um, they provide you with a, um, a, 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 a clear framework um, against which you can map your your findings, um, but uh, but a lot of the work that I do is is not you know it's not survey work, um, and uh, it's as I say it's it's a case of of you use you use the tools that you need to uh, complete the job, and that will vary. And in fact, as I was you know mentioning earlier, often you will use a, a range of of methods within the implementation of a survey um, as you might use a survey as part of an implementation of a larger project which has its focus on other uh, types of data collection. You mentioned um, in your last response that there might be both a quantitative and qualitative element to a survey and it'd be interesting to hear you just expand on that a little bit more because often surveys are you know put in the quantitative camp but in fact we're often collecting what might be seen as qualitative data in a survey as well. Could you, you know, for people who are new to the field, could you perhaps just explain that intersection a little bit? Um, yes, I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, in the same way that I was saying, albeit slightly facetiously, that, you know, people think that there's not much to surveys. I think people also think that surveys are quite uh, rigid and inflexible tools. Um, that you you know there are there are a few sorts of questions and that you can um, slightly adapt them, but basically, you know that's all that's all that there is. Um, you know, actually, surveys are um, incredibly flexible and can be applied to a whole um, a whole range of of different designs. So, um, I've used surveys uh, within experiments, um, within um, uh, sort of population studies which are directed towards providing that sort of big picture as I was describing for um, policy clients and 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 the like but um, within my own work I, that going back to the um, legal needs surveys that uh, uh, that we've mentioned before um, you know there have been many many legal needs surveys conducted over the years now and um, 
each time uh, a new survey goes into the field that, uh, that, that I have something to do with, there will be a series of questions which are very much regimented, that they're in there for a very clear purpose. Uh, we know exactly what we're going to do with them uh, before, we, before we start. Um, but it's a survey provides you with an opportunity to also explore a little bit beyond that. Um, and so we will, if there are emerging areas of interest, we will try to push a little bit into those. Now, sometimes we have a lot of uh, background information, and so we, we, we know what we're looking at, and it's a case of simple quantification. But um, it's not always the case that you actually know the nature of the phenomena that you're going to be investigating. Um, so it might be that you've done some qualitative work to sort of explore that uh, on, a, on a smaller scale. Uh, but surveys also allow you to just ask people, you know, what's going on here? And um, it might be that the responses that you get are fairly um, incoherent in conceptual terms. But um, uh, there's, there's, there is no need to have every question within a survey uh, directed towards producing um, sort of preconceived quantitative data. Uh, you can have open questions. I mean, if it's the surveys that, that I'm involved in will often um, uh, take uh, an hour or more um, of people's time to go through. So there's a lot of opportunity within, within uh, the space of an hour to ask people to elaborate a little bit on, on points of interest. And um, so it's not obviously the same as, as having um, a, a sort of qualitative interview where you're more or less handing the mic over as you're doing with me at the moment. <laughs> um, but, uh, but there is certainly the scope to allow people to, um, uh, to talk from their own perspective in their own words. You don't have to prescribe everything in advance. One of the things that we're quite keen to do in this podcast series is to expose the underbelly of methods, you know, all those awful things that go wrong or mistakes that, that you might have made and cringe about afterwards, because we think that's a really important bit of training um, for early career academics. I wonder if you could tell us about the problems you've had in administering surveys. Some of those might be common things that happen all the time. Some of them might be one off. Could you give us some examples from your own research? I don't know where to start, <laughs> to, to be honest. Even with forewarning of the question, I don't know where to start um, because I have experienced endless problems. In fact, I'd say that any project that I did that didn't involve um, really quite significant problems, I'd be very worried that either I was being um, incredibly superficial in my thinking or uh, we weren't trying hard enough. Um, and um, so in that OECD um, guidance that I produced on um, legal needs surveys, um, that goes into the many, many, many pitfalls that exist um, uh, when embarking on survey work. And I'm quite happy to say I've fallen down many, many of them myself. I mean, that's how we learn. Um, and... Um, and each time we try to move our understanding further, we're creating um, new 
uh, uh, potholes for ourselves. And um, so, um, yeah, so I don't really know where to start. I mean, other than, you know, to mention questions that didn't work, questions that you forgot to put in. Um, uh, I mean, sometimes that's a little bit of hindsight bias. And, um, you know, afterwards, you think, well, why didn't we ask that? Well, of course, now you know. You, you, you know that would be an interesting thing to ask but there's always next time um questionnaire routings that don't work um so you know key questions that uh, that, that didn't appear in the final data set obviously all that preparation that i talked about earlier looks to ironing out as many of these types of issues as possible and so um when you are uh, going out into the field, certainly in a sort of large-scale survey, you will, well, before you go out into the field, the first thing you'll do when the survey has been scripted is you will receive what's called top-line data, which is essentially just um, sort of random filling in of, of the survey, sort of like survey by robots, which is just intended to um, go down every possible routing um, just on a sort of random basis so that you immediately would identify if there's a break in the link and uh, and a question isn't going to be answered. Uh, there are problems with coding. Um, and sometimes they can be really profound um, problems. But I have, over the years, thankfully become much, much calmer about these things. But I, I mean, I, I do re remember, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do remember one occasion um relatively early in my career but i had been given responsibility for uh conducting a large scale survey for government um for um target monitoring purposes and i was just casually browsing through the data um as one does and um you know looking to see what what it what it what it what it looks like, um, and um, and suddenly noticed that the survey, which was asking people about their experiences across a um, a, a three year period, that that there was a, a huge uh, drop off in terms of um, if we're going back in time, in terms of when uh, when the uh, when the issues were being. Um, Placed. So we had lots and lots of issues that happened last week and hardly any that happened three years ago. And so I started thinking, oh, well, hold on a minute. You know, we're, we're, we need to be looking at a whole range of um, different, I mean, it's, this is different types of um, legal issue that people are facing. And, uh, and I immediately saw that uh, the, some of the problems like those relating to consumer issues, that there were almost no problems that went back beyond a few months. Uh, but for some problems, uh, like you know, if you had a divorce, that they were more evenly spaced across the time period. Um, but we were needing to come up with um, uh, estimates uh, for the population for specific periods of time. So what was rushing through my mind in the first instance was, oh, well, this is a disaster because we're going to have to start multiplying um, uh, up the, you know, we're either going to have to boost up the consumer problems, or we're going to have to uh, reduce down the divorce if we want to get to 
Um, but um, in amongst all of this horror at um, sort of, you know, <laughs> a realization of the true nature of, of memory, ultimately, because that's what we're reliant on, we're reliant on memory here, um, it <laughs> came this idea, which I still think of as being, you know, one of the best ideas that I had. Um, and, um, and, and it's what takes me through the dark moments, um, even, even now, is I suddenly sort of thought, well, hold on a minute. You know, this, this, is, this is a problem with the data in one sense, but it's also itself data in another sense in that this is telling us something really very interesting. Because why is it that people are remembering these types of problems across a three-year reference period, but these other types of problems only in the last week and not going back beyond that? You know, maybe what we're actually looking here at here is um, is an uh, an unplanned but possibly uh, quite robust uh, proxy for the um, seriousness of the issue that was being uh, faced. And so um, we ended up writing a paper which went into all of the technical aspects of um, memory decay and um, forgetting curves and looking at curves of different types of problems and different people and you know, different contexts, et cetera, et cetera, and, and uh, turn this deficit uh, uh, into a, an advantage, defect, sorry, into an advantage. And um, so... Um, yes, so that was, a, that was a problem, but also, you know, not the, I mean, the problems that are terrible is where you just haven't done your, your you know, you haven't, haven't done the work. You haven't put in the, the time to do a survey properly. And you've just asked a question that, um, if you ask it to 15 different people, they understand it in 15 different ways and give you 15 different answers that don't tell you anything about anything. I mean, that's, that's. That's what I consider to be a real problem. But if we've tried really hard and, um, you know, we've used our best endeavors and then afterwards we notice that, you know, there is actually a problem here, then usually in those circumstances, you learn a lot through the problem um, and as, as much as you would through if it had, you know, gone really well. I think that takes me on to the final thing that I wanted to ask you about, which was how you set about analysing the data produced. Now, you can put me wrong, Pasco, but I always think there's a lot of planning with a survey and a lot of your workload is up front. And if you get that right, you'll sort of minimise problems at the back end. Whereas when you're doing qualitative research, as you know, you just sort of have this mass of data that often you need to do the inductive coding framework um, at the end, and, and there's a lot of hard work at the end as well. But so, so take us through how you would go about analysing survey data. Um, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right in your characterization. <laughs> um, but I should say, and um, I've written, I have written papers in the past which are basically exposing the awful things that I've done in empirical terms because um, we are, you know, we're far too precious um, especially within a, a field where there is not a huge tradition um, and huge capacity for undertaking what is very technical work and demanding work. Um, you know, hiding problems under the carpet is, uh, is not a good place to start. So I will 
hold my hand up here and say that before I knew any better, um, this is a few years ago, um, but uh, but I would be guilty as many people are, um, and it's something that I spend a lot of time calling out now, um, of taking what one might call a rather speculative approach to data analysis, um, where, uh, uh, I mean, essentially you collect a huge amount of data and then you, you just run endless analyses on it um, and, and, and hope that something world-breaking is going to come out of it. This is a complete no-no. Um, so nowadays, apart from in relation to simple descriptive statistics, um, that are often vital in, um, policy and practice context, I try to have a very clear idea of how the data is going to be analyzed, uh, at the time of designing, uh, a survey. Um, you don't want to ask a question that you don't need to know the answer to. So that's one reason because even within the context of a one hour long uh, survey, um, I've yet to <laughs> I've yet to be involved in the survey that hasn't involved a lot of questions being cut uh, because of time constraints. Um, so just in terms of efficiency, you want to have an idea of what you're going to do because you don't you don't, you, just, you do not want um, any uh, deadwood in there. Um, and similarly, um, you want to be sure that questions that you are going to use are best suited to the questions that you're asking of them. Um, so again, you want to make sure that they are finely tuned to the analysis. And in order for that to happen, you have to be thinking about the analysis uh, before you start. So, you know, it's, it's not quite the same as saying every empirical project starts with a research question, but it's not far off. You need to be thinking about the analysis right from, uh, right from the start of, of the process. Um, and so nowadays it would be unusual not to have an extensive schedule of analysis set out prior to data actually being collected. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll get, I mean, again, going back to the, the, this point that when you're dealing with large data sets and you're going to be embarking on many lines of analysis, it is really important that you are um, being hypothesis led um, and not just going with the flow, because otherwise, to put it bluntly, all sorts of random nonsense is going to find itself published on the basis of a misapplication of the um, in any event now fairly dating notion of statistical significance. You know, if you, if you, if you throw a coin enough times, you're going to get a crazy sequence of heads at some point. And um, I'm really not interested in hearing about it unless you told me right before you did it, that you were going to do it. And if that was on YouTube, I still wouldn't believe it. That's really insightful. Thank you so much. And and just finally, you've suggested a couple of texts that students or early career academics turning to socio-legal studies might like to read in order to find out more about surveys. And could you just talk us through the why you've chosen those texts? So 
for those people who are just sort of starting out thinking about surveys, then a um, you know a good social science research methods textbook is is probably the best start point um, because there are a lot of considerations um, in relation to uh, choice of methodology. So, you know, not wanting to repeat myself, but you don't start a project by saying, let's do a survey. You start a project by determining a question and then you work out what the method is going to be. So um, people who are new to surveys are often going to be new to empirical research as well. Um, and so you want to start um, with something uh, quite broad and um, basic. Um, and so, um, I mean, as an example, Alan Bryman's excellent social research methods textbook, um, uh, which is regularly updated, gives a lot of uh, insight into those broad issues and lots of examples so you get um, uh, lots of opportunities to see what your own project idea looks like and therefore you know what direction you might go down um, in terms of a more detailed account of issues there are um, you know again a number of um, texts that you might look to uh, if i looked through my footnotes then uh, there's fairly common reference to um, Robert Groves et al's uh, survey methodology book or Edith Deleu's um, International Handbook of Survey Methodology. But it is important, very important, to recognise that surveys, just as with any um, empirical um, uh, method, approach, design, can be used in a huge variety of ways. And if you are really setting out into um, the world of surveys in earnest, then more narrowly focused guidance is, is, is often going to be the most beneficial because um, the, the broad textbooks are giving you um, an idea of the problems you're going to face in the abstract. It, it can be quite difficult to translate that into um, the specifics. So um, that was one of the reasons why um, the uh, OECD's global guidance on the legal needs surveys was was produced. And that is a pretty long uh, guidance document and it is just packed with, don't do this, whatever you do, don't do this, try this, might not work, but definitely don't do this. <laughs> That's a great list, Pascal. I'm going to look at the OECD's guidance, which I haven't looked at before. It sounds like it would be a really fantastic resource for the students as well that we teach. But can I just end by thank you so much for the time you've given up to talk to us about surveys. It's been really fascinating and I've learned a lot. Thank you. That's been a pleasure. Please visit frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk to find a list of the publications that have been referred to in this podcast and a reference to a piece of work from our expert that you might also want to read. You can also find other podcasts and reading lists on that page. We hope that you've enjoyed this interview and that you'll listen to the other podcasts in our series. 
This is an ongoing project. So if you have an idea for a new podcast, just get in touch. Thank you.